Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. Oh, Dr. Sayers. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're also lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Hello and welcome to Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And this week we're going to be talking about the composers of 1968. First time we're going to be looking at the best original score category. Um, what were your reasons for choosing this lineup uh, of original score 1968? Not a musical. That's right. Yeah, specifically not a musical. Um, well, that was one of the reasons that I chose this category, um, because obviously if we'd gone with uh, best score of a musical picture, we'd have to suffer through Oliver and Funny Girl and um I, I did just didn't want to do that but it was all it was um a combination of you know ticking off another category um in our quest to cover them all and we as you say we hadn't done score yet and after we did song a few episodes ago it kind of put me in a musical mood um yeah so when it came time to choose my next one i decided to look at original score and i went with 1968 because it had a couple of movies that I wanted to watch, um, a couple of movies that I really love and wanted to rewatch, so it seemed like a good uh, a good pick. Okay, we'll find out which the were the movies you loved uh, in due course. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I mean, like on an overall note, I I did enjoy watching all of these movies to some extent. Um, you know, yes. on paper, it might not look particularly um amazing but when you see the films the lesser known films there's actually quite a lot to unpack so we've got we've got a fair bit to talk about today definitely and all you know all at least listenable in the scoring department as well so yeah yeah um probably one of the rare times that there are no bad films in the list it's pretty pretty amazing mm. so what are the nominees who are the nominees who are the nominees well we have uh lalo or lalo Schifrin for the fox jerry goldsmith for planet of the apes alex north for the shoes of the fisherman michael legrand for or Michelle, sorry, Michelle Legrand for The Thomas Crown Affair, and the winner, John Barry, for The Lion in Winter. And a very animal-centric lineup. all of these <laughs> animal titles apart from Thomas Crown, just letting the side down there, you know? Yeah, it's a shame. And, and I mean, we'll get to the movie, but leave the most unimaginative title of all of them. Yes. It's like, uh, oh, it's, our main character is Thomas Crown, and he does something. Uh, Thomas Crown affair? Everybody cool with that? Yeah, all right. <laughs> he has an affair. Um, yeah. It, it, That's true. A bit lazy, yeah. yeah. Um, so first we've got the fox. Yeah, the fox. Um, and then you mentioned in the trivia this is the first Canadian narrative film to be Oscar-nominated? Yes, according to IMDb. Wow. 
Yeah, so I, I'm guessing by that description, they must have had documentaries nominated before then, either short or long form. Um, mm-hmm. But this is Lelo Schifrin, uh, who was a pianist of the time, and this uh, film was adapted from a work by D.H. Lawrence. Um, obviously, D.H. Lawrence wrote a lot of sort of female-centric uh, novels, Lady Chatley's Lover, Women in Love. What do you think about the female perspective in this? Is there one? Is there a strong enough one? Um, considering this is about female sexuality, what do you think? I think it's um, female sexuality as seen through the eyes of a straight white man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of the film's examination of female sexuality is while it is pretty progressive for the time there are moments where it does kind of pander to the straight male gaze um i'm thinking particularly about the early uh masturbation scene yeah doesn't seem to be there to advance the plot it seems to be hey we're doing a movie about female sexuality so here's a female acting sexually um Mm. And that that was weird, but um, I think in the sense that it creates sympathy for these uh, two female leads um, and really draws you into their relationship and the uh, threat to it that enters um, later in the film, I think it does a great job of that. I think it does a great job of establishing these two characters in a relationship um, with these feelings kind of bubbling under the surface that then get, you know, roiled by the arrival of an outsider. Yeah, I I was a bit uh, put off by the masturbation scene at the beginning. I think, mm-hmm. it, it, I think a, a poor choice in the film is that we don't get any female-on-female intimacy or sex until late in the day. Um, and it's almost like it cuts, sort of springs up at the end, you know, as a way of saying, you know, shocking you almost or wanting to. But really, I feel like it would have been it would have been interesting for them to already be, you know, to see them be sexually active with each other because it does sort of pussyfoot around the fact that they're a couple. Um, yeah. Which which might be like a, a byproduct of, of the era, of course, but. I just don't particularly like that choice. Um, and I think the film is interesting, but it, it does have, it is very, very heavy handed with that metaphor, <laughs> extremely heavy handed um, with the yep. Kia Dullia's, um, Foxy Kia Dullia, um, shall we say, uh, mm-hmm. sort of wrecking everyone's life. Yeah. Um I, I think the the skittishness about showing the two women in a actual lesbian relationship is definitely a point against the film, but I think it's also uh, contributes to just the kind of datedness of the ultimate message of the film, which seems to be... Uh, within every lesbian couple, there's a real lesbian and a woman who just hasn't met the right man. Uh, And that seems to be what we see here play out. 
Um, we have Sandy Dennis, who is, you know, the, for lack of a better term, and everybody please see the quotes around this, the real lesbian in the relationship. And then we have, um, uh, what's her name? The, uh, they couldn't get Glenda Jackson, so they got uh, <laughs> Anne Haywood. Um, Golden Globe nominee, Anne Haywood. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to be the... I guess, confused woman who uh, just needs a dead-eyed, scary dude to show up and play the Blade Runner seduction technique of physically assaulting her until she agrees to do what he wants. Um, Mm. Very romantic. And then, yeah, it, it, it goes in that direction. And it doesn't, I mean, I think that the metaphor, as you say, the very heavy handed fox in the hen house metaphor would have worked a whole lot better if the filmmakers had really committed to having these two be in a actual relationship from the beginning. Yeah. It just almost just feel like, uh, instead of lesbianism, what's portrayed is sexually repressed women. Whereas, mm. um, that's absolutely not the case, you know. Um, so I think in that way, it is quite ignorant about female sexuality. Um, and if you wanted to boil it down to things, it does feel like um, it comes to the conclusion that sort of a woman can be turned, any any woman can be turned by a man, um, even if that yeah. man is destructive. So I think that in some ways... It is trying to be feminist. I just feel like the ideas are sometimes confused, but it is quite fascinating overall as a film. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose you could make the argument that um, bisexuality does exist, so maybe Ellen is simply bisexual. Um, yeah. But I don't think that people, whether they were making movies or watching movies, were quite as accepting of the idea i mean they were barely accepting of the idea of homosexuality much less uh bisexuality at this time so i don't think that was an explanation for the approach they took or for her um ellen's ultimate i guess seduction or whatever at the hands of of paul i think it's i don't think we can give it that reading given the time and uh atmosphere of of its production yeah i it the film does build up to that sex scene near the end between them you know and the, the sort of tension uh leading up to it and you, you kind of think well he's already asked her to marry him i mean <laughs> it, it's hardly a shock when it happens um if she's considering marrying him it's hardly a shock that she then sleeps with him um yeah so i didn't really buy that but um it's very eerie. I love the feel of the film. I love the tone of the film um, that, that the score does contribute to. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like it's too reliant on the score, though. Uh, it sort of pops up whenever the the fox comes. The fox has like a little motif. Um, but as a piece of music itself, it's really good. I just think maybe it's highlighted in the worst ways in, in the film's silliest moments, like when... Uh, Jill asks Ellen if the fox is a, a vixen and she says, oh no, he's a male. And then the, the score comes in, do, do, do. <laughs> he's a man. Um, in, in this really mysterious way. 
and it does feel a little bit silly and over the top. Um, but I like the score as a piece of music. Yeah, and going into the film not really knowing much about it, other than it was kind of an early uh, attempt at showing lesbianism in, in a mainstream film, when the opening titles were on and the and the main and the theme of the film played, I thought, my God, is this a horror movie? Mm. Um, because this, it definitely has that kind of minor key dun 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 kind of um, feel to it and as the film played out it's like yeah I suppose this could be read as a as like a psychological horror film um, and I think it worked great I think that the score yeah it sometimes does is a little bit over the top and over reliant and drawing our attention to you know what was just said hey that's important or hey acknowledge the subtext of this but yeah yeah overall i think that it was it's a fantastic score um and just listening to the score on its own um i think is great uh which is not always true for film scores but i can listen to this score just on its own doing other things um, and enjoy it very much. So that's a definite point in its favor, I think. Yeah. Did Did you think it was going to end after the death? Because they, they have like a freeze frame on Ellen. And I was thinking, you can't end it there. Like, I think the last words were like, she's dead. And then and then the freeze yeah. frame. And I'm thinking, no, that would be too abrupt. Um, mm-hmm. But then the way that they actually do end it is, is quite chilling. Yeah. I, I actually thought that maybe I was actually almost thinking it was going to be a happy ending because it has that um, after they do finally sleep together and she writes him the letter saying she can't marry him. And there's kind of that montage of the two of them um, mm. enjoying themselves. I thought, oh, OK, that's nice. Uh, I guess it all turned out OK in the end. But then, of course, you know. Um, can't have that they have to she has to end up with the man so yeah that ending well okay the very ending yes is chilling and um, ambiguous and creepy as she gets in the car to go away with him Um, Mm. and her kind of wistful looking back and then the slow pan to the fox's uh, skinned hide is just an incredibly powerful way to end it. Just before that is one of the dumbest fucking climaxes I think I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Um, the wrong person died. Yeah. Yeah. And in the dumbest possible way. It's like the, the screenwriters didn't even bother trying to think of a way to make it realistic. They just said, okay, for the purposes of the story and the and the point that we're trying to make with the film she has to die so let's just have her stand under a tree and watch it crush her um he does warn her yeah he warns her a lot um and in in the book um in the novel he does actually kill her and make it look like an accident but i don't think that that's what's happening here um he yeah, he warns her several times that, and 
no matter where she was standing, honestly, it's a tree falling over. It could go anywhere. Um, so anywhere other than at the, you know, outside of the radius is going to be in danger. And then yeah. it starts falling and then maybe it's editing or maybe it's just a really slow tree, but it seems to take like 10 seconds for the tree to crash down on top of her. And in that time, we see a few cuts of her and she doesn't react at all. She's just kind of still looking up and just lets it hit her in the face. And it's just awful. Like they put no effort into making it believable. It's the kind of, I think it's the kind of climax that you see a lot in 60s and 70s films, like just bizarre editing and senseless death. Yeah. And sometimes it's done really well, and sometimes it's like this. And she just comes across as stupid um, in that scene. Yep. And also yep. sort of strangely fearless, whereas I don't think that character is particularly fearless throughout the film. So it didn't really fit in that way either. Yeah. But I did like the, the you know, just the moment before that where she turns to Ellen and is like, you know, say something. Obviously, she wants her to say to Paul, hey, go away. We don't want you here. But instead, she's just like, so what's up? You want to help us with this tree? And it's like, God damn it, Ellen. Can you do anything? Show some agency. Do something right. My God. Yeah, there was no agency at all. Okay. Um, so next, we've got the Planet of the Apes. Uh, this is Jerry Goldsmith. Pretty prolific. Mm-hmm in this category um and this is adapted from the novel by pierre boule and directed by franklin j schaffner and i didn't know this ending i was i I was absolutely speechless at the ending of this movie um Mm -hmm. so if you if you like me you've been in a cave somewhere um and you're listening to this turn off because now we're going to discuss the crazy ending to this movie um which has been well publicized, but and I did know about it in the back of my mind, but I didn't associate that when I watched the film. Um, but I mean, it does speak to how good the world building is that you don't feel like you're seeing Earth at all until this happens. Yeah, um, I think it is. Yeah, definitely one of the all time great endings of any film and it works as a twist and as a shock and also just as a button on the end of the story um and like all great twist endings it makes you reevaluate everything that you saw before and when you watch it again you kind of see it from that perspective and it holds up you know when you watch the movie again i mean i've seen it a few times the end still gets me because it's so well done and it absolutely holds up on repeat viewing. So yeah, um, go Rod Steiger, uh, not Rod Steiger, but um, who's the person I'm thinking of who did the Twilight Zone? <laughs> oh, Rod Serling. Rod Serling, yeah. Um, he, yeah, he who wrote the screenplay, yeah. Um, he knew how to do a twist. The Twilight Zone's terrific. I've like I think oh, I've yeah. only watched a series of it, but what an amazing series that is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I agree. It does it does force you to reevaluate. And now you know now I'm strangely conflicted about 
about Dr. Zeus and his attitude overall. Um, mm-hmm. Because sort of the humans have destroyed their own planet, which will probably end up happening to this one, but who knows, um, mm-hmm. through whatever war, greed, capitalism. Um, but Dr. Zeus is sort of wary of his own civilization evolving enough to enable that to happen again. Um which is just a really interesting conflict. It's a really interesting conundrum. Um, and I think, obviously, the answer lies somewhere in between that, um, the ethical answer. I think, you know, when you consider that you're kind of on the side of um, Roddy Medell's character a lot of the time, um, you know, why are these people so reactionary? Why do they not want to look, you know, explore um, what this civilization has to offer? Um so when you see the other side of it, then you think, oh, okay, this is great. Yeah, and I, I think that that's kind of um, the great, the kind of hoodwink that the uh, screenplay in the film does on us, right? Because, yeah, we do have that very natural, and especially, I guess, in the 60s, people would have had even more of that revolutionary, like, we're not going to take this um, oppression and this stifling of our human curiosity and our human need to know more if we knew that there was a civilization a whole species that came before us that reached such great heights and then through its own hubris destroyed itself maybe we would learn from you know learn from that and be a little wary of pushing too far you know stepping outside of our our capacities because i think that that's a great concern right that we that we are advancing faster than our mental and physical evolution can keep up with so we don't know how to handle the power that we've created for ourselves and that's why a catastrophe happens all the time and a big one is on the horizon but if we if we had a blueprint like the apes seem to have, a blueprint of a species who did it so spectacularly wrong. Yes. Could we, you know, apportion a little bit? And like Dr. Zeus is the keeper of the faith, so he has all the knowledge and he's apportioning it. Now that can get into, um, you know, who should have that responsibility and all that. But in theory, it actually sounds like a good idea. Pace the technology advancement so you know that the species can handle it um i mean it it, it's an interesting thought experiment and i honestly don't know if i've convinced myself that it's a good idea but it's not a bad idea and interestingly though the the ape society in the film was originally supposed to be super advanced um but then uh for budget reasons, they had to scale it back to the kind of um, uh, primordial society that is in the film. I mean, the the whole question also comes down to do people learn lessons? And I kind of, I'm very doubtful that, that lessons are learned. You still have dictators um, being wheeled out trying to, you know, expand their, their empire like Hitler tried to. I kind of always think there's going to be th- the danger in that in that regard um but i think the only thing with this film that i think could have been improved upon is the language element and 
I think what mm. really would have elevated it to masterpiece level for me would be because the, the concept's great, the ideas are great in this, but I think the apes should be speaking a different language and we should see the subtitles because to me that would then... I know it does make a bit more sense that when you know it's Earth because they can have access to the language from the past, but I also think it would have been a bit more immersive and a bit more realistic if they couldn't communicate with Charlton Heston um, regularly, if they'd had to sort of work out some kind of conversation between them. Um, so for me, I, I, I do like the um, the approach the newer film takes to the language element, even though the newer film's pretty rubbish, to be honest, that series. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like that they're speaking their own language. Um, that was my only real problem with the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, I I would say that um, while that would be awesome, I think it would have added a layer of complexity that would have um, necessitated cutting a lot of other stuff out to make it run on time. Yeah, it would have to be long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there could be a sequence where they learn each other's language and are then able to communicate rudimentarily, but there would have to be a lengthy period where they were just learning how to just get basic basic concepts across. Um, and I, I also would add that that's, another, that's a, a point in favor of um, the otherwise annoying Hollywood convention of just having everyone speak English in films, even if it makes no sense. Um, like World War II films, all the uh, Germans and French are just speaking English with each other for no reason. Because um, it, it means you don't notice the twist coming, you know? Even if it makes no logical sense, if you don't know it's Earth, you would you never once stop and say, well, why are they speaking English? How could they possibly know that? It's just, well, it's a movie made in English, so of course they're speaking English. And it, it kind of protects the twist um, just on a purely technical level. Yeah. To bring it on to the score, um, I think mm -hmm. this does feel massively ahead of its time. Um, and it's sort of like, like sound engineers, sound effects engineers, you know, uh, do this, still do this to some extent, you know, travel around the world um, and record sounds in everyday life that can then be used in films. Um, it's become a lot more digital now, but I think this is an example of hearing sounds put into a score that feel like they've been crafted and feel like they've been thought about and how will they fit this world. And I think this does feel particularly innovative on a sound level by the fact that it creates this musical accompaniment that's not melodic particularly. It's sort of made up of mm -hmm. like diegetic sounds designed to feel part of this particular setting. And they help to characterize the planet as a world and, and draw you into it. So it's very, very clever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's um, that aspect of it is part of why I love it so much because it's um, a lot of these other scores that we're talking about today. You can kind of look at, the um the musician's other or the composer's other catalog and kind of see the similarities and see like okay this sounds like john barry or this sounds like um so and so but uh jerry goldsmith really made this a unique score um 
and it doesn't feel like just one of many scores that he did, and he did do many, but that shows a great talent, I think, on his part to really immerse himself in this world and, as you say, create a soundscape unique to this film. Uh, And it, it is fantastic, and it never feels overpowering. It does feel like just part of it. Uh, and of course the the theme is amazing too uh just the the opening title music yeah it it it's different from the fox when the when the score comes in and the fox i th- sort of think oh okay it's been brought in here um to create drama whereas with this it's almost like you don't notice at times because it feels so natural um to the movie so yeah, I I was blown away by this score. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Charlton Heston? <laughs> <laughs> um, he knew uh, what he was good at, and he <laughs> stuck to it. Um, I mean, I I think he's perfect for the role. Um, to be honest, he's got that kind of swagger that the character needs. To be, you know, because he is indignant throughout the film Mm. that he is um, supposed to be subservient to apes. And you can kind of see the conflict, his kind of human pride welling up all the time. Uh, And that's, I mean, Charlton Heston, I think, really expresses that really well because he, you know, he wasn't kind of an arrogant jerk in real life. Um, (laughs) So... Yeah, really great, and plays to the ending very well, where he realizes, you know, what this hubris cost him and everyone else. It is funny to see Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter, you know, Kim Hunter, Academy Award winning actress, uh, just under those layers of ape makeup. Um, Yeah, that couldn't have been fun. (laughs) Oh, and my dad um, did mention to me yesterday that he'd been watching Roddy McDowell in How Green Was My Valley. Um, yeah. Which is, he was just a kid in that, so I thought it was interesting. It's quite a long time before Planet of the Apes. Yep, and uh, just a few years before his accent, um, ambiguous turn in the Poseidon Adventure. So he had a, <laughs> he had a long career. <laughs> All right, next, um, speaking of long careers, uh, the next nominee is The Shoes of the Fisherman, uh, composed by Alex North. Alex North, kind of the Glenn Close of the music branch. 15 nominations, no wins. Pretty dire record. Yeah, they finally, yeah, they finally threw him an honorary Oscar in the 80s, right? But, um, yeah, yeah, that is tough. That is very tough. And he, um, like Jerry Goldsmith, was nominated almost every year in the 60s. Uh, so it's pretty amazing that he didn't win ever. And he won the Golden Globe for this particular score. Um, yep. But lost the Oscar. This movie won the National Board of Re- Review's Best Film Award. And Leo McKern won Best Supporting Actor. Is it that good? Is it deserving of that kind of accolade? Um, 
you know, I, I don't think I would call it the best film of the year. Um, I do think among in a film with, again, some pretty questionable accent work, I think Leo McKern does a, does a great job. Um, I, I think if everybody had just dropped the accents, I think this film might even have scored some acting nominations at, at the Academy Awards. It should have had, had at least one for Oscar Werner. In my opinion, I thought he was absolutely tremendous in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, and as, as always, I mean, I, I don't think I've seen a Oscar Werner performance that I didn't like. He, um, I mean, he's always sad. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen a film where his character is ever happy, but I guess that's just his natural face and his <laughs> natural expression. Um <laughs> but I, I liked this movie um, more than I was expecting to when I saw the subject and its runtime. But I did, um, I did find myself enjoying it. Um, I thought that Anthony Quinn did a very good job in the as the titular fisherman. Is is he the fisherman or is Jesus the fisherman? Or who? I didn't get that analogy totally. Um, well, the shoes, the shoes of the fishermen are. I, I just it's a reference to the Pope, isn't it? Yeah, that it's something to do with that, but I don't know the religious history behind it. Um, I guess the the fisher of men thing wasn't Saint Peter supposed to be the fisher of men? It, yeah. I don't know. I'm half remembering it, and I don't want to go down that road because I'll just. I'll probably get it wrong. But anyway, um, Anthony, Anthony Quinn, great. And um, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel too long. You know, it um, it tells a story, a complete story. And it actually kind of works as a character study. Um, it has some cliche moments like the, you know, dressing as a lowly priest and going out to meet with the common people thing. And. I definitely would have cut the whole subplot with the journalist. Oh um, my god, what was going on there? My I don't wh- know. I think they were desperate for some kind of American perspective um, in this story, which really doesn't need one. Um, but yeah. the American journalist having an affair with the younger woman, it's extremely silly, and it doesn't have much of a resolution to it either. No. And... It just completely superfluous um, to the plot. Like, keep the doctor, like his wife, she's cool, but just give give her another arc. Give her a, I don't know, you already have the cliche Pope going out in disguise bit, so give her a cliche struggling with her faith arc that can get resolved when she runs into the Pope, you know, that's fine. Yeah. you know, this is the kind of movie where I would just shrug and say, yeah, why not? Um, but otherwise, just cut it. Although, you know, it was nice that he had such an unlikely deep knowledge of Vatican procedure in the event of the death of the Pope. So he could just spew exposition after Pope John Gilgood died. Um, but other than that, I did not did not see the point of any of that. Well, it, it starts with the overture. There, there was a series of oh no moments at the beginning of this movie for me. 
and the first was mm-hmm. the overture and I just thought no and then Michael Anderson's <laughs> name came up and I that was like a mm. double no for me um yeah after around the world in 80 days but I I kind of agree with you I liked it more than I was expecting to I think when it became less about politics I was happier um I think the thing is, it it does ask a lot of questions. It mainly, what is the role of religion in politics, and is is it to mm-hmm. heal political global rifts, um, which is kind of what the film is suggesting. Um, but Anthony Quinn's character Kareel surrounds himself with a lot of people who have ideas and aren't afraid to upset the status quo, like Telemond, uh, Oscar mm-hmm. Werner's character. And it does sort of get across how burdensome the role of the Pope is in the sense that this person's got to promote Christianity and encourage people to look at it differently, you know. Um, it's it's almost like PR spin, really. Um, but I do feel like the film or the author of the book certainly has pro-communist tendencies, Um given that it seems like, you know, Kirill as a Pope is very much a man of the people, let's let everybody contribute kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And let's give away, and let's give away all the church's money uh, <laughs> to the poor and the needy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Which is fine. I'm not, I mean, I yeah, call myself no, no, a socialist not, not, rather than a communist. Not knocking it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I feel like the script asks interesting questions, but it is dull. I mean, it is it is a bit dull. It is a bit stilted for long periods. Sure. It's very talky and quite drably made. Yeah, considering it's shot in Rome and Vatican City, uh, it feels very <laughs> kind of stagey at a lot of points. I'm not sure they really make use of the location. I guess they figured everybody was sick of Rome or seeing Rome in movies by that time, and they thought, oh, they'll just picture it in their mind, or they'll go watch Three Coins in the Fountain if they want a nice look at Rome. I swear Three Coins in the Fountain gets a mention every week. <laughs> as long as the film is in Rome, I will bring it in. Yeah, it's that, and it's either that or Shelley Winters. So. <laughs> um, what did you think of the score? Because Alex North used some of his material from 2001 A Space Odyssey, which didn't get nominated. Um, But I think a lot of that score, wasn't it based on original existing material? I think in the end, 2001 was entirely existing material. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think the story was that, um, you know, I don't want to get too off the rails, but basically Kubrick, uh, when he was editing the movie, would use existing music as like placeholder music to kind of help him get the pace and everything um and then in the end he just thought you know what this will do and he just went with it and i do feel bad for alex north because apparently he didn't know that his music wasn't in the film until he saw it at the premiere oof that is harsh yeah i mean that's that's classic kubrick i have to say um but yeah but i did I did struggle knowing that while watching this movie to wonder what part of this score would have been from 
music for 2001 A Space Odyssey because none of it, I mean, I don't think he just lifted it straight out. He adapted it, but mm. still. I think the beginning, the yeah. the beginning is all very, I mean, there is sort of a Soviet vibe to the score. Um, it does yeah. feel like it's sort of, the score is something that soldiers should be marching to in a way. Um, mm-hmm. It's not very mm-hmm. melodic. It's all very, very dense and sort of, here you go. Um, so it's it's probably the loudest uh, and showiest of, of the whole lot that we've discussed today. Um, but it's not particularly memorable. No, and I mean, that's what I... And I, I found myself thinking, thank God Kubrick just went with his gut because if Alex North had scored 2001, I think it just would have sounded like any other movie. Um, like the shoes of the fisherman, this score, like I, I wrote in my notes, if you told me this was the score for the agony and the ecstasy, I would believe it. And then I see that, um, Alex North also scored the agony and the ecstasy. So it just seemed like basic score music for a all-star technicolor film of that period i didn't get anything unique or distinctive about it i didn't feel like it added to the to the story in any meaningful way other than to just kind of be like now a dramatic moment now a pensive moment now a playful moment or something like Mm, that very by the numbers yeah yeah I wanted to ask a question. Do we know how Telemund dies in this? Because that was very, very confusing, that whole sequence. I, I think he mentioned something early in the film about having some kind of tumor uh, or something, or some some other brain abnormality that's basically a classic film illness where it can kill him at any time, probably <laughs> right after he delivers some um, needed piece of advice or counsel to the main character, uh, which indeed is what happens. So, yeah. Um, so some sort of hemorrhage. Yeah, a tumor or a hemorrhage or something like that. Okay. Because I was kind of sad when he died because he was the most interesting mm. character for me. Um but yes. yeah, I was less bored than I expected to be. I was bored for lengthy periods, but I think the film manages to sort of stimulate with its ideas in a way that was unexpected. Maybe if the film ever gets a re-release, we can get that quote on the poster. I was less bored than I expected to be. <laughs> it's hardly a glowing review, is it? <laughs> Maybe it's the best it's going to get. Okay, speaking of the best, uh, this is the Thomas Crown Affair. That's not right, but... um, (laughs) This is Michelle Legrand. Uh, This is uh, who did Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Young Girls of Rochefort as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So a bit of a French legend, musical legend. And the Thomas Crown Affair... How did you feel about it? As a film, I thought it was incredibly 60s. Um, It's just kind of a fun, a really fun movie. Um, And Steve McQueen just at his kind of boyish 
impish best. Mm. Uh, I, yeah, I kind of just was along for the ride for a lot of it. I loved the uh, split screen elements, um, which I think could have been way overused if they weren't careful. Yeah, I was getting worried. Yeah, I mean, it could have turned into the Oceans movies uh, if they weren't careful. But I, I think that they used it the right amount. Um, and I think it's an especially energetic way to start the film by just throwing us right into this robbery and showing it to us from the different angles and the different split screens uh, was a great compact way to get through it quickly and just um, just convey the excitement of it. Yeah, I was kind of on board with it. Um as an economic device, I think like if it had happened the whole way through, I would have gotten really annoyed with it because um, you couldn't mm. say things properly when they were happening, uh, when that was happening. I think the plot was not very exciting. Um, I like the movie, but I like the movie more for its um, sort of relationship drama that, that ended up unfolding um, mm-hmm. than for its sort of as a heist caper it's not the heist itself was not exactly thrilling for me um so it took me a while to get into it but once Dunaway and McQueen meet and you get this absolutely brilliant chess scene which is all the films we're going to talk about today this is for me the best constructed scene in all of these movies is when them when Dunaway is sort of shamelessly um, enticing Steve McQueen with her body language. And I was kind of thinking, you know, in terms of Michelle Legrand, there wasn't much to um, remember uh, from from what had gone before. There wasn't much great about it until you get to this scene and you think, okay, this score really (laughs) is impacting this movie um, for the better. So I, I, I really enjoyed that element of it yeah yeah i I agree that that scene is a is a highlight um i think it may be the best use of chess as a story device i've ever seen in a movie um it just every everything is just contained in that game and where the film has led us to that game and then it just goes out from it so it's almost like the middle of an hourglass where it just, <laughs> everything comes to a head in this moment and then expands again. Um, and yeah, it it's long too, but it just is so well put together and so perfectly paced. Um, and then, of course, the punchline where he gets up and says, let's play something else. I, I don't think that... They don't finish the game, do they? They don't... I mean, they, they eventually finish the theme game, the movie game that the chess game is the subtext of but they never finish the chess game do they no i don't think so (laughs) i think what's interesting because legrand was um once he'd done the score they had to re-edit the movie and so i'm guessing that this scene is completely edited to fit the music rather than the other way around Mm -hmm. um but yeah I, i i really got into the film when done away when the sort this basically this is the start of when the movie gets good for me because then when you he 
he gets into a relationship with her, you know, eventually you sort of realize that he's a complete sociopath. And sort of before that, mm-hmm. he, it wasn't clear to me. I, I just, I, you know, obviously he likes money and he likes power and he likes gambling and winning. But I didn't think that his love of money could outweigh his love of her. But when you get the scene in the bedroom where she realizes that really all he cares about is money um, and she knows that it's useless and she, she decides she's got to turn him in. I think that is absolutely brilliant writing um, from a character perspective. I just think it completely works. And I think Faye Dunaway is excellent in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, she really is. And you do, I, I found myself definitely feeling for her like, um, she is his match in a lot of ways, but she can't quite match his disregard quite to that degree. You know, yeah. um, she's she says she's in it for the money, but eventually she realizes she's not as in it for the money as he is. Um, and yeah, I agree that bed scene is is amazing, and watching her reactions in that scene like her non-verbal performance in this film is is fantastic um where she realizes that she doesn't want to play the game anymore and he's still that's all it is to him is pretty amazing yeah and the end is also very very good um because you kind of i think you kind of know that he's he's not going to turn up um but I like the way that they sort of the red herring of, of the car coming in. So that was kind of it was a great way to end the movie and then her reaction to that as well. Yeah. Um But we've got to talk about the hats. Her hats in this. Um Fade Unaware wears a some great hats. An assortment of wide brimmed hats which need to be seen to be believed, to be honest. And they just stole the show. I think she has 29 costume changes in this movie. <laughs> so that's where the budget went. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pretty much every scene, every mood, every motif you can think of, she's got a hat to match. And you wonder where they all were, because she didn't seem to arrive with that much luggage. Um, <laughs> but she's got them. I don't know if she's just buying them on the fly or what, but yeah, her hats are magnificent. So the the winner was, oh, one of the best movies of the 60s, The Lion in Winter. Uh, should have been this year's best picture, but whatever, that's another conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is adapted from the stage play. Uh, by James Goldman, which didn't get great reviews, and the film didn't get great reviews, um, which kind of feels surprising now, given its reputation now, but I think Pauline Kael's review was very sceptical, and she criticised Hepburn particularly, and said that her later career performances, sort of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner onwards, were more about playing on the audience's love of her as an actress rather than about digging into the character which I thought was an interesting take although I disagree in terms of this particular movie certainly 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a little harsh. Um I think I I think I tend more towards uh Roger Ebert's um review which said it I called it a literate script handled intelligently and I think that is a great summation of it. Um it's very wordy, but it doesn't feel wordy in the way that the shoes of the fisherman did. Um it's mostly it's mostly conversation, but it's also um a several battle sequences it almost seems like but just done through words and it's as exciting as any battle scene in a war film to see these characters um assaulting each other with betrayals and coups and shifting alliances and revelation after revelation and just it's it's a delight to see these highly intelligent characters who know exactly how to hurt each other and how to also show affection for each other, especially, you know, uh, Henry and, and Eleanor, played so brilliantly by Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn. Completely agree. It's vicious. It's absolutely vicious. The scene where um, she goes on about sleeping with his father is, I mean, at that point she's desperate, so she has to sort of resort to that. But it's absolutely, mm-hmm. it's it's like, how can I possibly hurt you uh, as much as I can. Um, I mean, the film is too long. It, it's far too long. Um, well, not far too long, but it's definitely too long considering it's um, all sort of discussions about the same thing, really, um, albeit in different ways. Um, but it's very compelling. Yeah. And just so many perfect lines. Uh Every other line is this perfectly quotable, witty uh, outburst. All the characters get a chance to shine in that regard, and I think it could have it could have come across with less talented actors as kind of overwritten or too stylized. But in the hands of these actors, they pull it off so well. They deliver the lines with such panache; it it just works perfectly. Um, and, you know, Hepburn has several great moments to shine. I, I especially love uh, the scene where she says, um, I think it's it, right after the aborted wedding. Um, I'm locked up with my sons. What mother does not dream of that as such? It's, I'm not going to do a Hepburn, but it's like <laughs> dr- dripping with sarcasm and venom as I think only she could have delivered that line. It's perfect. Um, I I hadn't caught all of those moments the first time I saw the film, so I was happy to rewatch it and really savor uh, the line deliveries from her and from the rest of the cast. Well, you sort of... She doesn't attempt an English accent. Um, she sort of had the same accent in everything, Catherine Hepburn. But it, it, it still just works. She's... I mean, she is an amazing actress, and mm-hmm. and she totally brings it to this. I, and there's sa- profound sadness in this as well, um, even though sometimes you don't know if the character's acting um, for sympathy. But at the ending, I just think she's she's wonderful. And O'Toole, we we probably aren't going to get to do best actor now, but O'Toole losing to Cliff Robertson is regarded as one of the worst um, decisions in Academy history. 
especially given that O'Toole never won. Um, but he's wonderful in this. He really is. Um, uh, he, yeah, he should have won for this. It should have been a, it should have been a knockdown, hands hands down, no contest win. And I don't understand it at all. Um, terrible. Yeah, shame on the academy forever for that. But the I I have to say I kind of see Eleanor and Henry in this film as one of the best couples I've ever seen in a movie because they fight and they really do hurt each other but they also seem to really love being in each other's company and they both enjoy the game so much they're looking forward to when they can get together and do it again and they never want to die because, and they never want the conflicts to be resolved because that would mean they wouldn't get to have fun together anymore. It's a love story. It's a love it story, is. really, between yeah. them. Um, you know, irrespective of everything else that goes on. Um, especially like this time, I especially sort of definitely think that they love each other despite everything else. Um, Mm -hmm. and that is moving as well that's somehow moving in the middle of this crazy you know barrage of insults that we get treated to Um, for me a couple of the performances did let it down I really could have done without Nigel Terry um, which is sort of just felt quite one note Um, and I think Mm. Jane Morrow is also not particularly good but uh, Anthony Hopkins is good and, and um, yeah I, I I kind of also like Timothy Dalton as well as Philip and the, oh, I do the, too. the gay affair between him and Richard was quite interesting um, which is kind of based on truth apparently yeah and I did the scene just before that um, when, Kath, when Catherine when Eleanor sends him to negotiate with uh with philip and they share that moment where richard is like oh, I, th- I think you should go and she says no i i don't know him and that's such a oh she's so evil sending him there and then you find out you know then you find out like oh wow she is cold when they're together i think yeah i think that Hap- uh, hopkins and and timothy dalton play that scene really really well and Hopkins' portrayal of Richard's heartbreak when he overhears Philip talking to Henry is, oh, you, yeah, you feel really bad for him in that moment, I think. He finally lets his guard down, is finally vulnerable, and he just gets crushed. Yeah. I mean, it is, like, from the portrayals of the three princes in this, it's not difficult to... um guess why richard eventually became the king um (laughs) but it's although it's often the one that can um, fight the best isn't it but yeah unfortunately you know john was eventually king but that was long in the future so we haven't talked about the score yet um it's Mm. not in it much no and this this is actually kind of another shoes of the fisherman feeling where I kind of felt like this could be in another movie. Um, 
with a few yeah. exceptions like the the opening the opening title theme is great and i think that it feels very 12th century it feels right for the period for the film but then the rest of the score kind of doesn't do a great deal and then when i listen to it by itself again it was like okay john barry did a lot of bond films and if you told me that this score was from thunderball i think i'd believe it because it just sounds kind of similar to his james bond scores yeah for the most part so kind of disappointing yeah i i liked the score as a piece of music i think as a score um its impact on the film is is considerably less than most of these nominees um but it's certainly a nice piece of music on its own but it's it's certainly nothing not the thing you would remember from the movie it would be the last thing you'd remember yeah Okay, um, we've got a listener question this week. It comes from Zeta Short. And she says, The trailer for the <laughs> Thomas Crown Affair doesn't tell you much beyond selling you on the idea that Faye Dunaway and Steve McQueen are hot people. Is the film itself basically about that subject? Um, yeah. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. Hence the yeah, hats. Pr- yeah, the hats and the suits and the and yeah, the aforementioned boyish impish charm of Steve McQueen. Yeah. Yeah, it's um I mean it it looks the film looks very stylish from start to finish. Um so it definitely achieved its goal, but I don't think you'd see this film made with um Shelley Winters and <laughs> Lee Marvin. Um <laughs> No. No, it's it's yeah. not a you were right before it's not really a heist movie is it the heist is kind of incidental Mm. it's much more just watching these two characters uh go at each other um and in that in that regard it succeeds very well yeah so that brings us on to the question why did john barry win this oscar and was it close um I don't know. I I think that this is a very kind of safe um, score in the sense that it is kind of unobtrusive, doesn't take a lot of risks, but also doesn't add much. Mm -hmm. And I think solely based on that, um, I guess that's good enough for the Academy. But it is also interesting because John Barry had just one uh, a couple of years prior to this for born free so Twice. he certainly was yeah yeah right um for score and song so he certainly wasn't due um he was clearly very popular at this time yeah um he won yeah. it's very it's in direct contrast to alex north actually he won five of seven nominations yeah and of course, his his following two uh, wins were for best pictures, right? Out of Africa and Dances with Wolves. So he was kind of so in in those films, he was kind of caught up in the sweep of the films, yeah. winning a bunch of Oscars. With this one, he's he's one of three uh, Oscars for Lion and Winter. So it isn't quite as much of 
that going on. Um, yeah, although this is the only Best Picture nominee in the lineup, so that's right. Yeah, it's clearly the most popular film, um, and often the most popular film does win. That's yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So close or not? What do you think? I I doubt it. Um, I think that the score is classic Oscar-winning kind of score. It sounds good, and it doesn't get in the way or anything like that. So not not that any of the other ones get in the way, but you know, it's a safe pick. I think amongst these nominees, not as safe as the Shoes of the Fisherman. Um, but I guess the Academy had already kind of figured Alex North was uh, going to always be a bridesmaid at the mm. at the Oscars and just went with John Barry. Yeah. Okay, snubs. Do we have any for this year? I've got a couple. I can't think of um, I can't think of any snubs in particular. So um, so what have you got? Well, we got Nino Rota who did the Godfather scores. Um, in this year had Romeo and Juliet, uh, for which mm-hmm. he got the Golden Globe nomination. And Romeo and Juliet, very popular in the technical categories in this year. Yes. Apart from that, I've also Golden Globe nominated Christoph Komeda for Rosemary's Baby, which I would have liked to see mm. involved in this. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. It's a great movie, if we mm-hmm. ever get around to it to watching that but yeah another another one that might have been kind of in the running was the battle of algiers had a very um sound was a very you know kind of a very important aspect of that film and kind of creating as we were saying earlier creating the sense of the world and creating a sense of the atmosphere so i imagine i mean maybe it was a little too too unscore like that could have probably hurt its chances, um, but I mean, after all, this is the year Oliver wins, so obviously they weren't going for avant-garde. Uh, so, yeah, but great, great score for that film as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any wider observations on 1968? Um, obviously, a huge, a hugely popular time for musicals, hence the. The yeah. need to create this not a musical category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which didn't last too long, um, the separation. But they it took a while for original score to kind of settle um, into it. Because, I mean, before they divided it between musical and dramatic or comedy. But then, of course, early in the category, they... Um, divided it into many other different categories and they had like 20 nominees and things like that. So um, it's, it's a weird split. It's like the um, inverse of the golden globes instead of comedy musical, it's drama and musical and comedy gets its own. And then for a while it was split between substantially original and adaptation. Um, and then they went back and forth and back and forth and song score was a thing for a while in the 80s and 70s. Yeah, it's a weird category and, you know, it's a nightmare from a stat from a statistical point of view because you can never really nail it down. Well, didn't they start doing the 
Disney scores, or there was some kind of thing in the in the nineties where they, they created a comedy or music score as well, right? Musical or comedy score, very short lived in the nineties, just to, um, yeah, as you say, to push all of the Disney scores into one category and yeah, and give other people a shot. It's a weird category, very weird category. But in terms of wider observations on 1968, I think it's probably one of the most obnoxious and disappointing years in Academy history. I mean, Oliver winning Best Picture and Director, Cliff Robertson winning Actor, 2001 not even getting a Best Picture nomination. Um, yeah, it was a it, it was a mess of a year. I mean. Catherine Hepburn winning Best Actress for this film, absolutely on board with it. Streisand tying her for Funny Girl, not as much on board with that. Um, oh, I think she's good. I'm quite, yeah, she's good. I mean, but... Hepburn's got enough Oscars <laughs> overall. Um, I, 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 I mean, they they did nominate Kubrick. They nominated Gilo Pontecorvo in director. Yeah. Um, yes, I don't mind Oliver. I think Ron Moody's particularly great in Oliver, actually, um, and I really like Rachel Rachel from that year as well. Yeah, and that's another thing they snubbed Paul Newman for best mm. director. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. I mean, I really like the line in Winter, but I would have. Pr- I mean, I'd probably be more on board with Paul Newman being nominated um, over Anthony Harvey or Carol Reed. Yeah. I mean, Anthony Harvey's direction is fine, but I don't know how much he had to really do with this script and this cast. Um, I, I think they would have I think they would have been fine with a different director. So I'm, I'm not sure how much of a director's film it is. So, yeah, his his inclusion in the best director field is a little suspect. Yeah. OK, do you want to rank these? Sure, let's do it. Um, number five, I've got The Shoes of the Fisherman. Uh, number four, I've got The Lion in Winter. Again, uh, the main theme is great, but the rest I just find kind of cookie cutter, typical berry. Um, third, I've got um, I've got The Fox. Second, I've got The Thomas Crown Affair. And number one, uh, Planet of the Apes. I think it just functions great as a score and also is just great to listen to on its own and for the second time we've matched exactly um after shoes of the fisherman at five it's it it's just a little bit traditional for me um it doesn't have much character to it the line in the winter is sort of similarly so but it, it is a good piece of music the fox i I thought it was overutilized and a little bit repetitive, but overall it does contribute to the movie. Um, Thomas Crown Affair, I think, is actually really, really good, but nothing touches Planet of the Apes for me. Yeah. And Jerry Goldsmith only won for The Omen, didn't he, despite a lot of nominations, I think 17 nominations. Um, but The Omen score is very good. Yeah, he was another one with a bunch. And um, Michel Legrand, of course, did win an Oscar this year for The Windmills of Your Mind, the 
incredibly 60s <laughs> main theme song of uh of this and then he did go on to win a couple of best score oscars in the 70s and 80s so he did all right and alex north whatever <clears throat> if it, if his 2001 <laughs> score was anything like this um he should not have been surprised that kubrick jettisoned it although it gave him material for more stuff so a win for him i think in the end Okay, we have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. In our next episode, we're going to be discussing Best Director 1976. Uh, the nominees were John G. Abelton uh, for Rocky, Ingmar Bergman for Face to Face, Sidney Lumet for Network, Alan J. Pakula for All the President's Men, and Lena Vertmuller, first woman ever nominated for Seven Beauties. Looking forward to this one? Very much. This is a pretty stacked category this year. Um couple of and so stacked that um when we get to the snubs I probably won't be too upset about the ones that I have to name because this is a great lineup. Mm. And yeah, and uh timely as we face the you know, the possibility of another female directing winner. It'll feel good to it'll be good to revisit the one who started it all. Round like a circle in a spiral, like a wheel within a wheel, never ending or beginning on an ever-spinning reel, like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon, like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon, like a clock that sends a sweeping past the minutes of its face, and the world is like an apple whirling silently in space, like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind, like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its own down a hollow to a cavern where the sun has never shone like a door that keeps revolving in a half-forgotten dream for the ripples from the pebbles someone tosses in a stream like a clock that stands a sweeping past the minutes of its face and the world is like an apple whirling silently in space like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind keys that jingle in your pocket words that jangle in your head why did summer go so quickly was it something that you said lovers walk along a shore and leave their footprints in the sand there's the sound of distant drumming just the fingers of your hand pictures hanging in a hallway and the fragment of a song half remembered names and faces but to whom do they belong when you knew that it was over you were suddenly aware that the autumn leaves were turning to the color of a hair a circle in a spiral a wheel within a wheel never ending or beginning on an ever spinning reel as the images unwind like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind.